from the team at CTS, this is the Train Right Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Make sure to also listen in on our running edition of the show with my co-host, Hillary Allen, which alternates weekly with the cycling episodes. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by Stages Cycling, the industry leader in accurate, reliable, and proven power meters and training devices. Stages Cycling offers the widest range of power meter makes and models to fit any bike, any drivetrain, and any rider. They're all manufactured in their Boulder, Colorado facility, and they've expanded their offerings to include the Stages Dash line of innovative and intuitive GPS cycling computers, covering a full range of training and workout-specific features to make your workouts go as smooth as possible. And now Stages is applying its decade of indoor cycling studio expertise with the new Stages Bike Smart Trainer. Check it all out at www.stagescycling.com. This episode of the Trainwright Podcast is brought to you by the CTS Trainwright Membership. The Trainwright Membership helps you get the most out of your limited training time so that you can improve your performance and achieve your athletic goals. With the membership, you get access to science-based training plans, an 800-plus workout library, and an app to track your progress, along with advice from professional coaches via an online private form. Go to trainwright.com backslash membership to learn where to start and use code TRAINRIGHT for a free 14-day trial. Again, that's code TRAINRIGHT in all capital letters for a free 14-day trial. Our guest today needs no real introduction because, as my colleague Jason Koop said in an interview with him, he's, he's literally everywhere. So, Dr. Seiler, uh, where are you at today? Well, physically, I am uh, in the on the southern coast of Norway. I'm in my home office. It's you know still Corona time here, and we are under some significant restrictions. So I'm I'm working from home uh, in in on the very southern coast of Norway, and uh, so I can look out towards England, look out towards Denmark, and wish that I could get in an airplane and fly around the world. But but like very many, I am not doing that right now. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Uh, same thing here in DC. I don't have the view that you do, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> but, uh, uh, working from home. I mean, how, how are you spending your time th- these days with, uh, uh, working from home and, and gathering all the data and things like that? Well, I, I can't complain because I, I have a good situation. I have a good office. I don't have small children around me that I am home teaching, uh, so I have a great, uh, respect for the challenges that millions of people are facing and millions of families. But my day, you know, I'm, I live alone. My children are 22 and 17 and my 17 year old lives with his mother 300 meters up the road. Uh, and, and so I am able to work from home quite effectively. Uh, a lot of zoom meetings, a lot of teaching from, you know, and, and advising, via zoom it gets kind of 
old and, and you know the teaching part is difficult because you don't feel like you don't know who you're who's actually listening to you at all and so so that That's aspect true. of it is 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 tiring it's energy you know it demands a lot of energy uh, but you know there are i have to say I, I don't know that we'll ever go completely back to the old the you know normal whatever that was pre you know 19 to 2019 uh but Man, my day sometimes starts at 7 a.m. with a Zoom meeting with a colleague in New Zealand. And I've had, you know, meetings or, or webinars that I've finished up with at 1130 at night. And that's just because of time zones, you know, because of once oh. you have these digital tools then all of a sudden time kind of goes out the window. And then we try to flex uh, just as you and I are doing. We're working on different parts of the globe so there's we're in different time zones and and just ha making all that work i think sometimes stretches my day stretches my week you know <laughs> so that everything blends together yeah yeah i think i think so many people can relate to that right now for sure <laughs> in your heart at it grinding away and and still have this this fresh energy though in, in the endurance space which i i, I definitely respect and appreciate and, uh, you know, first of all, you know, welcome to the train ride podcast and thank you for taking the time, uh, throughout all the meetings and teachings and zoom calls and podcasts that you, uh, are doing, but, uh, with that fresh energy in the endurance space, um, you know, listening to your story and listening to podcasts, I, I don't think I've ever heard really how you got into like where you're at today in terms of the endurance, um, uh, research and being a preeminent author and the kind of the father of polarized training. Can you tell our audience maybe a, a bit more about the, the background of Steven Seiler? Well, going all the way back, you know, the start is just me being a kid that likes two things. I love sports and I love science. And, and so I was this sporty nerd kid that actually literally had a laboratory under the stairs. I kid you not, uh, with, with, you know, beakers and test tubes and microscope oh, and, you know, and I would go out and collect pond water and put it under my microscope to see what things I could discover. And, and just, you know, that was just me being a kid. Uh, I lived out in the country and, 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 uh, so I did that. And then I played, you know, sports. I did track and field, uh, football, and, um, and so those two things, as far as I knew, would never meet. They were just two different parts of me. And then I, by chance, uh, read a book, uh, uh, uh what was it called? The complete book of running, I believe by James Fix. And, uh, he, he's passed away, unfortunately, but that was one of those early books in the, in the seventies, late seventies, that was kind of coalescing this fitness movement. And there was one chapter called The Scientists of Sport. And I, as soon as I read the title, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, this is me. You know, and so <laughs> I'm 15, maybe 16 years old. And I just, yeah. boy, I thought, man, I have found something here. And I ended up studying this young field at the time, 1983. I started a program in so-called exercise science. And did a bachelor's degree in that master's degree and so forth. And just, just built from there. Gotcha. And that was in Texas, right? Yeah, I was, well, I was actually living up in Arkansas. My family, I moved okay. to Texas to do my PhD. I was in Texas until age 10 and moved to Arkansas. So 
it, I kind of went a bit back and forth between Texas and Arkansas in my uh, in those early years. And uh, yeah, so Southern United States, grandfather was a preacher, you know, just <laughs> kind of grew yeah. up in that where Ameri- if you didn't play football, you know, you didn't know what to do with yourself. So from a sports perspective, endurance didn't really come into the picture until much later. Uh, because all I wanted in the world to do when I was 10 years old was play for the Dallas Cowboys. Right. And, uh, that <laughs> right. just didn't happen, unfortunately. And so, right. or for, fortunately or unfortunately as it was, at least my brain yeah. is still working and, and I don't have any kind of a traumatic injury, but, um, <laughs> but along the way I got in, I was interested in coaching. I, I, I at age 20, I went to the Soviet union uh, as a student, I was one of three students on a delegation of 50 from the so-called uh, National Strength and Conditioning Association in the United States, NSCA, yeah. Yeah. and wanted to learn their training methods, their strength training methods. And so we were at the Moscow Physical uh, Moscow Institute of Physical Culture. This was 1986, um, just after the Chernobyl incident, just after the... Uh, space shuttle explosion, Challenger explosion. Both of those things happened in the weeks and uh, a couple of months prior to me going there. So I was seeing all this, you know, propaganda on both sides and, yeah, and uh, wow. studying their methods. Yeah, it was quite an exci- amazing time because it was the beginning of perestroika, you know, this opening up of the Soviet Union. Five years later, of course, the Soviet Union is no more or it mm-hmm. becomes, you know, broken up into Russia and all the former satellite countries. And so um, that was the background is I wanted to, you know, my dream was to work at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and work with power and strength and so forth. And then and in the summer, I was working in a fitness center as a strength coach. And I was literally working with some young kids out in the grass at 7 a.m. They were, you know, had a little strength program that I was leading. And I slipped on wet grass during a, a, a repeat long jump kind of exercise. And I, pour, I, I tore the patella tendon off the bone oh, in my right leg, a partial, at least partial tear. And so I had to have orthopedic surgery. And so long story short, the rehab from that involved me cycling. And I ended up borrowing a bike. And I, I, within a few weeks, I, I get in a ride with a guy who's a Cat 3 cyclist in, in the U.S. And, you know, decent. And I'm able to stay on his on his, on his his wheel. And that kind of impresses him. And, you know, for, or I stay on his wheel for an hour, you know. And, and so he kind of says, well, I think you should try riding. And that's how I got into endurance stuff. <laughs> Six weeks later, I did my first race. And I, like a citizen's race, got third. And thought, okay, you know, this may be something for me. Because I'm, I'm apparently not going to be playing for the Cowboys or any, anytime soon. So, right. so, so that's where the endurance connection begins. And then, of course, whatever I'm doing, then I wanted to understand it more. And so, then my master's degree, my, you know, I went from doing my first publication on anaerobic power and American football players to actually doing a master's thesis on interval training in rats. And and and. You know, so that's, you know, and then I did my PhD uh, on cardiovascular function and, and so forth. So it all stemmed to a great deal from, in a, to a great extent, from just an accident. Just, yeah. uh, you know, and and I think that's kind of representative for a lot of people. And, and certainly for me is that 
life it becomes this mix of choice and chance in the sense that you know we have all of our big plans and for me it was education and i followed that plan with great structure and, and commitment but then the various chance things that resulted in my specific interests and me int- uh, hap- uh, happened to move to norway and so forth those weren't planned you know so so mm-hmm. <laughs> life ends up being this combination of all of our plans and then a lot of uh, a lot of you know accidents or serendipity along the way <laughs> that's it yeah I, mean, I guess i was i was hoping or thinking that you're found yourself in in a phys lab one day and you're doing some my muscle fiber typing and you decided based on your composition of fiber types you should start riding a bike but um <laughs> oh no it was not that scientific at all but in a sense it was just based on the fact that i had some a, a good experience with it i didn't right. that's it right so there was still a bit of fiber typing in a sense and it, but it was just in a very functional way is that for whatever reason, my body functions reasonably well in this activity. So let's see where I can take it. Yeah. But then I did all kinds of things wrong in the training (laughs) process. I can assure you, I mean, pretty much anything you can do wrong. And, and I probably, I, although I had zero data from that time, this was 80, you know, I'm riding a bike in 87, 88, 89, 90 in that frame time frame, And then I went over to rowing, but there was no, I didn't have a heart rate monitor or to the extent I did, it was just something I looked at occasionally. Uh, so there was, I have no data, but I am almost certain that I just went out every day and thrashed it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty, I'm pretty confident that that was my strategy. Um, because I had no coach, no one taught me about easy days and hard days, or certainly there was no 80, 20 or polarized training or anything like that up in my head. Uh, I just wanted to get better. And to the extent, you know, when we had group rides, it just became chase racing. You know, we were, and the the guys that were established, they were going to try to kick my butt and I was going to try to hang on, you know? So, uh, I am quite sure I did not train very optimally. Uh, and I was not good in longer races. You know, I was quite good for about an hour. And then yeah. if it was longer, if it was two, three, those, you know, some, a few four hour races I was involved in, or these long tour rides that were really races, you know, I, I would just slowly crumble cause I didn't have the base. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, segment into that because that's that's exactly why i brought you on the show today because there still is a are a lot of people that train like that you know they 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 think going hard all the time is the way to do it they uh jump in the group ride and it's basically a race and you know they're they're falling apart after 90 minutes or two hours maybe and Mm -hmm. they don't have that that ability to endure you know to go along and so um yeah we're 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 going to talk all about that and and help some of these people maybe uh, simmer down a bit (laughs) on that group. (laughs) But uh, as we transition into the episode, um, I do want to say that uh, I was, it was going back and forth with Dr. Siler on on Twitter, trying to shape this up. And, and uh, (laughs) what he, what he asked me was, Hey, are we going to, you know, speak to a different audience or are we going to, is, am I going to get asked different questions or is he going to answer the same questions even better than before? And I said, yes, of course. 
all of those. So I hope this, I hope this episode lives up to it. Uh, I hope you have some fun, Dr. Siler, and I hope everybody, all of our listeners, uh, learn something from it. So should we get going? Sure. I'm ready. All right. Okay. So in taking every, well, everything that you've done, Dr. Siler, and trying to wrap it up and bring some of this home, uh, one idea or concept is that you've been talking about a lot lately is an athlete's development and kind of the, the long-term time courses that it takes to build an athlete. And in our last episode, we talked about periodization as a way of organizing training methods and how we as coaches and, and athletes try to organize those training modalities or, or the game plan to peak or perform at specific times when we want to for, for peak performance. Can you just kind of summarize and, and, and talk about the importance of planning when it comes to having a training program versus just going hard all the time and, and showing up to the group rides and trying to grind it out? Yeah, although you may not necessarily expect my answer. Um, oh, I great. think maybe it was Dwight Eisenhower or it was, uh, who said something like, you know, plans are essential or planning is essential, excuse me. Planning is, is, is ex- essential, but plans are useless. <laughs> Expand on that for me. Yeah, so that, that seems like a contradiction in, in terms. But, but many people have said this, and, and it has to do with the fact that the planning process obviously is important. But when, you know, when you first get hit by reality, the reality of crap happening during the week, the reality of multiple stressors and so forth, plans don't go necessarily, you know, like clockwork. And you have to be flexible. You have to be agile in your adjustments. And so that's kind of one of the things, you know, when I went to the Soviet Union, um, that was one of the things is we, we had heard about this magical term and this magical thing called periodization. You know, it had this, this, this kind of something they were much better at than we were uh, in, in our understanding. And, and there was literally a guy, a, a former weightlifter who'd broken his back in training. He was now, you know, to take an education. He literally snuck to me pamphlets or these 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 uh booklets that were the basic periodization models for for weightlifting for the soviet union and and obviously he was giving me something he wasn't supposed to because he was sneaking them to me and um and they were for different levels of performance and and it was it kind of typified a feeling that there was something magical in the plan that if you executed the plan, then, you know, their plans were better than our plans. And, you know, historic history has now told us that, well, there was probably a lot of things they were better at, but, you know, uh, (laughs) but it may not have been so much these plans. And in fact, those plans didn't really come from much science at all. They came from uh, management theory uh, more than they came from physiology and and so periodization models have been built on some assumptions of linearity. You know, if you if you're going to build a, a garage on your house, or you're going to renovate your kitchen, uh, you know, or build out a playroom at the back of the house, then you 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 will have a periodization plan, and it will be very 
uh, linear, and it will be very uh, sequence dependent, mm-hmm. meaning that clearly you got to build, you've got to pour the foundation first. Uh, clearly, you're not going to do that third, right? So you, there is a a logical order, and if you get things out of order on one of these building projects, well, then it's a total fiasco. And But if you do the order correctly, then you get a nice garage with everything in place. The electricity works and the lights and there's a roof that doesn't leak and so forth. And the, the basic construct of that was transferred over to sports, to training, a linear model, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you do this first and then this and then this and then this, you reach a peak at the right time. Well, good grief. We know the reality is just not that simple because biology is not linear. And, and bio, biological signaling is complex. And there are, you know, in, in modern science, which discusses chaos theory and, and butterfly effects and things like that, helps, to help, helps us to understand the realities that you can have an athlete that last year followed this program and had a wonderful year with great progress and then this year they follow what they think is exactly the same program, but something's not quite right, right? They're not having the same effect. Why? Well, it could, there's can be a myriad of reasons. They've, you know, they broke up with their girlfriend or broke up with their boyfriend, or they have an, they've had some, an infection in their body. There could just be small issues that are changing the, the complex set of uh, variables in that biological system, right? Hmm. So that's, this is part of the reality that, that everyone faces. And therefore, you do want to have a plan. Of course, you do want to have, uh, you know, you need to know where you are and you want to know where you're going. And then you, you plot out a, a, a strategy for getting there from a standpoint of performance. You know, what are my main goals for the season? What are the big blocks where I'm going to do certain kinds of training. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Planning is important, but then we need, um, monitoring tools. We need on the ground awareness so that we can make adjustments on the fly. And this is, this is the art of good coaching, but it's also the art of just being a smart athlete. Exactly. And and I'm glad you went there because as a young coach, all about periodization and planning all the things, right? And you may have done that too, in terms of writing the best program that you thought possible. And as you coach and coach, and I've been doing this for over 15 years, you realize it's like, I'm going to spend five minutes on that in terms of <laughs> broad note, where everything wants to go. You want to think about the plan, but then once you've done that plan, you kind of set it aside. You get to know your athlete. You get to know how they adapt to stress. You get to know how they tick and talk. You get to know them so that when stuff goes sideways, you know how to adjust. And I think for all of our listeners on here, it's, it's more about knowing thyself, or if you're working with a coach, it's developing that relationship so that you can navigate the rough waters when they're there cruise when you got the calm waters and, and uh, make hay while the sun shines. Right. Yeah. And, and I talk about f- a framework or, you know, and, and, and we'll get into this a little bit, but people yeah. ask me, well, why does the 80, 20 model or the po- polarized training model work and da da da. And, and I, 
I was just making a slide and I, I found a picture of some guardrails, you know, <laughs> on a, on a winding mm-hmm. road. And basically I would draw parallels with the, this 80, 20 model that, that has kind of been a self-organizing process in sports training for many decades that I didn't invent. I just kind of observed and quantified. It seems to function as guardrails in a, in a way for athletes that, that if you, if you achieve this basic intensity distribution, it solves a lot of problems from a standpoint of getting the balance right between stress and recovery and so forth. And so just like the guardrails on the windy road, you still got to drive that road, but it tends to protect you from yourself <laughs> and like from the realities yeah. you're race you're, you're in because what are the realities on a winding downhill road? Well, there's inertia. You know, <laughs> the, the car wants to go straight and not around the curve. And so yeah. mistakes can be made. There's ego in the sense that, hey, I'm I, this is kind of fun. I'm driving fast. I think I can handle this, you know. Well, that's dangerous, you know, because ego gets us in trouble also as athletes, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's competition. Somebody drives past me and I want to keep up with them somebody rides past me on a bike and I want to keep up with them. So the guardrail analogy on that windy road is, I think, very relevant in the sense that it it protects us from ourselves and from our, our worst impulses. And, and those impulses tend to be to double down on intensity, to, to push on the accelerator, to, you know, take, <laughs> not, not think big picture in the moment, but think epic workout instead of re- remembering that this is the one, this is one drive and alive. Let's not make it a death experience because you want to get home to your kids. So it's the same as the workout. This is one workout of hundreds you're going to do this year. So yeah. f- put it in that perspective, right? Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So planning is crucial, knowing how to navigate even even just as important. Um, so to talk, we'll come back to kind of big picture and we'll come back to long-term thinking because a lot of this um, to build a durable athlete, is, as you've said in various forms, I mean, it, it takes a while. But in order to, to get there conceptually, I want to talk about how we define some of this. And in particular, I want to talk about quantifying, qualifying endurance training in the the, the kind of the forms of load, stress, and strain. And in this way, I mean, you painted a beautiful picture. I think it was, uh, I think it was endurance coaching summit this past year, virtual, when you talked about how engineers think about load, stress, and strain. How does that correlate with how we do it in the endurance realm of things well yeah that whole process is (laughs) i gotta say i gotta back up and i've been listening to a few episodes of this kind of nice podcast where uh, former president barack obama and bruce springsteen have been chatting it up i haven't listened to is it is it worth listening to I think so. Yeah. I mean, okay. but you know, I, I love Bruce Springsteen and, I, yeah. Bruce, and, and I also have great respect for Barack Obama. Uh, but, but there was an episode where Springsteen is talking music or their chat. They're talking about music, this third episode. And, 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 and 
Springsteen's talking about his process and and uh and I could relate to it because there's a creative process in your mind where you know just things are coming together and sometimes very unintended consequences emerge from it you 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 were doing something you thought was small but it ends up being big and Mm -hmm. and I spend a lot of time thinking obviously about training and, and I was during the lockdown I was thinking a lot about stress I got I bought a couple of uh, books, uh, you know, classics from from Celia, Hans Celia, from uh, Walter Cannon. These are hundred, you know, these are fifty year old and and even closer to hundred year old books. But they were about some of the basic research that has brought us where we are today uh, on on stress, on on you know uh, the the stress response of the body, and so. You know, and and when I look at training language, training terminology, and all of our digital tools and all the different metrics that have emerged, both with and without much science behind them, it's a it's a muddy water. The the waters are quite muddy right now. Yeah, uh, a lot exactly. of terms are being used, and there's a lot of overlapping. And if you make a, you know, I even made a um, what do you call them a word cloud. Of all these different, you know, at least a lot of these different terms. Mm-hmm. And and then I just said, well, look, and I went into the literature. I tried to say, where where, where can I get guidance in trying to uh, bring some clarity out of this confusion? And, and it turned out to be uh, a couple of things. One was a, a deeper insight into what Hans Selye was actually thinking or what may be some some actual linguistic mistakes he made because he spoke eight different languages with English being just one and not his mother tongue. And then then going to what the engineers were doing because the engineers are much more uh, logical, right? They're much more right. cut and dried in their approach. Right. And that's where I saw this load stress strain. And then I understood that when Celia wrote stress, he pro- his co- his contemporaries of the time have argued that he probably meant strain, mm-hmm. and so then I said, okay, well, what's all this mean? This is interesting because this maybe creates a a way to go into this forest and 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 pull out something that people can understand, and that's where this load stress strain came from. Because when the engineer talks about these terms, there's just there's no confusion. Because they do this all the time, and and load is just it is what it is. It's a neutral, uh, you know, a weight or a mass or a pull or a push that they want to quantify. So they let's say there's a wooden beam. I've used this example. Let's say you're gonna you're an engineer and you're gonna test the the load tolerance of a crossbeam, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a piece of wood. And that piece of wood has a certain thickness and it's got a certain length and you're just going to put a load on it, meaning you're going to put 200 kilograms or whatever. And that kilo, that, that's a mass. But then because we're on Earth, there's gravity, which is a kind of a calibration, uh, just like, you know, humans that, that we have an, a, a threshold power or whatever. Um, but we put that load on it. It's neutral. But now that that beam has to has to tolerate that load. It has to res, it responds to the load, and the engineer will then define a a term they will call stress as the load divided by 
the the cross section of the of the piece of wood or the piece of metal or whatever it is, right? So they they and then they they define that as the stress on that beam or on that object, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if they increase the load enough, that piece of wood will bend. If you imagine a, a piece of wood horizontally with a load on top, if you put enough load on it, it bends. It and that bending, that deformation, it's being deformed, right, by the load. Mm-hmm. It they call that or define that as strain. That deformation. Now that deformation can be temporary, where you just take that load away and it just the beam just bounces right back to its mm-hmm. original shape, right? Mm-hmm. Or it may slowly come back, or in worst case, it may never, <laughs> never retain its original shape. It's permanently deformed, and in in the very worst case, it snaps, it breaks. Just, just like some various athletes, right? There you go. <laughs> see, you're starting to see there's a there's some connections here, yeah. and so that then I it, for me it just said it made sense so. Just before, in the weeks prior to the Manchester, or, I mean, to the the talk with Training Peaks, this is where I was at, and so I said, "Look, I, this is what I want to talk about: load, stress, strain." Um, be, in part, you know, and I know Dirk for you, and I've met the people from Training Peaks, but I would argue that training stress score is not that at all. It's a load score, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take into account the actual stress of you know, and things changing during the workout. And so I I just tried to exemplify this through this model so that we can quantify load and load is what we apply. It's, it's duration times intensity. Uh, It can be calibrated up against our capacity, just like you calibrate against the thickness of the piece of wood or metal. Uh, But then during the workout, stress occurs, sometimes very little, sometimes a whole lot. Now, what is stress in this situation? For me, stress then is a growing challenge to meet the demands that the load requires. Okay? So let's imagine I'm riding at 200 watts, and my heart rate will, of course, go up. My oxygen consumption goes up to meet the demand, but that's not, for me, that's not stress. That, that is just the body adapting, the body reacting to the load. But I come up to some kind of a steady state. My heart rate stabilizes. My oxygen consumption stabilizes. My breathing. And now I am meeting the demand of that load. And if that just stays stable, and I'm listening to Bruce Springsteen on the podcast, and everything's copacetic, there's very little stress in that workout. My heart rate's at 60% of max for two hours. You know, so I executed the workout with essentially no stress. You with me? Uh, And I'm good to go the next day. No worries. But in other situations, let's say that, that that load is 275 watts which is much closer to my 60-minute power, which might be 310. Well, now I've, at 275 watts, the first minutes feel pretty good. I feel, you know, I can I can listen to, to Bruce and 
in, in focus. But to be honest, after about 20 minutes, you know, my heart rate's starting, it's sliding up, it's starting to slide up, up, up. And if I do 175 watts for 90 minutes, I can guarantee you that by the end of that, I am no longer focused on Bruce at all. I'm focused on trying to survive the workout and get the heck off the bike. I'm stressed. Right. My body is stressed at meeting that demand. Even though the, the load is staying constant, the internal cost of meeting that load, of achieving that load, is increasing throughout the ride. Okay? And that stress can show up as, you know, heart rate drift. It shows up as increase in blood lactate. It shows up as as an increase in, in, in ventilation. It shows up in a lot of ways. It shows up definitely as an increase in what we call perceived exertion. You know, so there, there's a lot of indicators. And if we could measure hormones, we'd see that my cortisol was increasing, particularly towards the end of the ride. And so these kinds of things are indicators of an acute stress response to the load. With me God. so far? I'm with you. I like it too. All right. And now the next question will be, well, how am I going to feel tomorrow? Now, after that first ride at 200 watts, which I'm was, which is well below my first lactate turn point, you know, my, so I'm in the so-called green zone. I'm in zone one. Yeah. You know, I could stay in at 200 watts for four hours. So two hours is not a big deal. Um, well, the next day I'm good to go. I, there's no after effects. I, I recover fully in 24 hours. Okay. Yeah. Um, after that, Threshold session, well, let's call it that, you know, it was a tough, long threshold session. After that session, I may not, th there may be some lingering effects as I go into the next day, 24 hours later. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to see, you know, if there is strain, if there is a, def a deform, a de deformation in my physiology, so that board is, is still a little compressed in your analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's still, I'm bent. I'm still, yeah. <laughs> I'm still either my, maybe my autonomic nervous system is strained. It could be that the muscle muscles are strained in a, you know, that they're still depleted or that there was muscle damage. If it was running, you know, there's different, it can be at different places, different points in my system. But that won't, I won't know really until the next workout because that's where it will emerge. It can emerge in the form of my legs feels like crap. You know, I'm sore. I'm having a hard time generating the power. It can show up as my heart rate response is too high for the power compared to what's normal. It can also show up as my heart rate response is too low. Now you think, well, good grief, Steve, make up your mind, right? <laughs> heart rate too high, heart rate too low. What are you talking about? That doesn't help me much at all. But that's the reality of it because it depends on, on where the strain is. Let's say if I have muscular damage, if I haven't recovered at a muscular level, let's say I did a tough weightlifting, you know, strength training session also, yeah. then, then now I've got some muscle damage, which is changing the muscle recruitment. I can have higher heart rate at that same load 
But if I've, I've been doing a tough block of training, I've, been, I've had a big volume block where I've done several hard sessions in a row, it can also be a, an autonomic issue where literally the brakes are going on to my so-called autonomic nervous system or my sympathetic nervous system. And, mm-hmm. and you'll hear athletes talk about it. They'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm in shape, but I can't, I can't get my heart rate up. I don't know if you've seen this in your athletes, but it's very common. I, yeah, they, I try they not to say, see it too often. Let's put it that way. Of course, right, because <laughs> it's not something you want to be. You, you don't. It's a it's a warning lamp. But yeah, you you say they'll say yeah the brakes are on. I don't have that last gear. Well, that is an example of strain. Okay, in 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 this three three part delineation that I'm trying to set up for you: load, stress, strain. And so those are the, you know, I want to be able to quantify the load, but I also want to be able to be sensitive to and aware of and quantify the stress and the change in stress responses during the workout and know when enough is enough, right? And then I want to be able to detect eventual uh, strain reactions in my athlete. And, and also, because that can be a warning lamp to say, okay, we pushed a little too hard, uh, we need to back down, or you need an extra day of recovery and so forth, right? So though right. that's if, if, if we understand that conceptualization and then we have a, a set of tools that are calibrated appropriately and that we use with the right con, you know, consistency, then we have a, a, a structure for... Uh, exactly what we were talking about before regarding the periodization, which is being agile with that is, you know, being, making those adjustments on the fly based on how our athlete is responding to the loads that we are prescribing. Got it. Got it. And if we lump all of this training into one concept of stress, we basically miss the point on, on, several things and probably have some mismanagement of how we do the next workout or how we do the next block or something like this. Right. I, I think so. Yeah. And, and we metrics are dangerous. They're, they're fun and believe me, I, I love numbers, so don't get me wrong, but they, they also have some, they do bring out the worst in us because we tend to train to metrics. We tend to get lost in our logbook. Uh, and, and this is, this is just human nature. <laughs> and so, uh, actually, and, and, yeah, I think ahead. that's really important because people, can you talk, can you clarify metrics? Cause I a hundred percent agree with you. And I, and I want you to clarify what a metric is versus say what you look at to monitor performance or, or training. Can you speak to metrics for a second? Well, an example of metrics with no harm intended, but an example of a very popular metric is the TSS, the training stress score, which is in training peaks. And training peaks is a very popular, very, uh, you know, a a wonderful tool that connects coaches and athletes, right? But the TSS is this so-called training stress score and it's got there's an equation there's a, a you know a law uh, uh, an equation behind it related mm-hmm. to you know the intensity relative to the so-called functional threshold power 
and there's a it, it's basically squared so the in, intensity factor squared times the duration is essentially what's giving you this training stress score but an underlying assumption of that piece of math is that every hour at a given intensity factor, meaning a given percentage of your FTP, it, every hour is the same. So if you're on a four-hour ride at, let's say, 70% of your FTP, hmm. then every one hour block has the same stress score associated with it. The first hour is, let's say it's, let's say it's 50, 50 TSS. Yeah. The second hour is 50 TSS. The third hour is 50 TSS. The fourth hour, still 50 TSS. Well, that's not true in a sense, if that was actually measuring stress. Why right. am I it's so tired at hour, hour four if I'm running the same power, Dr. Seiler? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Right. And so, it, yeah. it, but now if we call it load, then I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. It is the same load. Yeah. If you were in a steady state where it was just a four hour ride at, at, at a given power output, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the same load, but it's not the same stress because as that ride proceeds, glycogen depletion is ensuing they may be becoming dehydrated there's a, n a lot of processes there's no true steady state in physiology and right. so the the cost of doing that of of achieving that load is increasing the body is becoming stressed by the endeavor and it's it's not just intensity dependent it's duration dependent and so this is one of the unfortunate issues is that there's too much focus on the intensity as being the only or the most important purveyor of stress or, or cause of stress. So higher intensity, higher stress score. Yeah, but you can have a low intensity ride that goes long enough and you can, you can stress the hell out of you if you're mm -hmm. not used to riding long. Okay. Yeah. So, so these kinds of things are not baked into that stress score. And it's, it's, it's poorly named to be very honest with you. If we use that language of the engineer, the load stress strain, if we follow that logic, then, then the stress score is a load score and we yep. need a stress score or a stress conceptualization we need i need my athlete to be sensitive to yeah that's what that's the load you rode for three hours at an average of 200 watts which is uh 70 of your so-called of your threshold power okay but how do you feel how did you feel at the end well to be honest with you i was feeling really tired and i was really empty in my legs and my heart rate was 20 beats higher than it was at the start and i just you know, if, if I had said you were 12 perceived exertion at start, I was at about 15 at the end. Well, that tells me that that was a pretty tough workout for that kid. Mm -hmm. That kid's stress, you know, that was a, there was a pretty big stress here. So I definitely wouldn't have wanted him to go another hour. That's one thing that would have been way too much for his current state of durability. And two, I'm going to be a bit careful because even though this was, in theory, a low-intensity workout, 
I may have a kid that this interval session he was supposed to do tomorrow, he may not be fully recovered for that. He, he may not be as ready as I thought he would be because I overextended him a bit. Yeah. Okay. And so now I'm talking in singular workouts, but often this happens more over a stretch of workouts that add up to too much and they haven't fully recovered. And so then we start seeing these strain responses. But do, do you see my logic here? I do. And where I want to go next, if you want to, so that's a metric. Uh, what is not a metric that you look at when you're trying to build durable athletes? What, what should we be looking at? What should our audience be thinking of either separate from a TSS score or a Sufferfest score or something like that, um, or in addition to? Uh, it's a great question. And, and you know, and, and if the TSS, if you have an understanding of it and a calibration of it, I'm not saying throw it out the window. I'm just saying mm -hmm. uh, be more aware. And so what do we use? And I generally talk about this, uh, this holy trinity. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I grew up in the southern United States where there was some religion in the, in the game and we talked <laughs> about the holy trinity. Well, for an athlete, and particularly an endurance athlete, but I think all athletes, you have three way three feedback sources or three measurement sources that you 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 rely on one is just the external load and we have all these tools for pace and power we have our gps we have our power cranks and we can get the power whether it's on the road bike or on the train or you know at home so power is or pace are definitely worth knowing and then we have physiology in our our most relevant window into the physiology that's accessible to pretty much everybody is a, is a heart rate monitor. And, and heart rate is a very good, um, surrogate measure of, of the relative stress on the system. And then we have that third, which is just our brains that <laughs> we are, our brains are a wonderful, uh, aggregating, mechanism for taking all of the signals and changes that are happening and then and then equating it as a perception a perception of effort or exertion you know and that that can be very qualitative but it can also be kind of quantified that's where you get these the borg scale you know the the rpe the rating of perceived exertion so some coaches use that and say, hey, where, where were you today at the end of the workout? Well, I was at about 18. Okay, that's high, right? So there's, there's, so there's those three ways. You've got your, I want to know your power or pace. I want to, and then I want to know some physiology. And then I, I want to know some perception. And if I have those three, they form a checks and balances system, like a well-functioning government, right? Yep where you've yep. got the judicial branch and the executive branch and, and the legislative branch, as I, as I recall, I think they are, they are. Uh, and, and in a well-functioning system, they, they su support and um, create checks on each other because they each have their weaknesses. Same thing when it comes to training. Uh, you know, perception, it can be, it, it varies from person to person. It can be off. The power 
doesn't tell the whole story. The physiology may not tell the whole story. You know, for example, the low heart rate versus high heart rate. Well, if I can link that to perception, then that helps me to uh, internally calibrate and make better decisions as a coach or as an athlete if I'm self-coached. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, one of the things that I've talked about and kind of preach about to my athletes too is is self-awareness, knowing thyself in that perceived effort. That is something that I'm asking all the time. I, I want athletes to put into their training logs or training peaks or something like that. And that, that is a very overlooked, uh, quantifiable and qualifiable um I don't know if you consider it a metric or not. Is is it a number? But it's very overlooked and very important, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and uh, I, I often joke about the only athlete I coach day to day is my own daughter, uh, <laughs> who's who's doing distance running. And, and uh, yeah. you know, I was on the phone with her last night. And 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 let's let's say it this way: my goal, and I think every coach's goal is should be to gradually help their athlete become more and more self-sufficient and self-aware. Yeah. And, and, and less and less um, a passive recipient of information and more and more of an active participant in a process. Uh, I happen to have a daughter who is extremely actively participating in that process. So that's never <laughs> been an issue. you know. Yeah. So, uh, but, it's an interaction that, you know, she, she, she wants to understand. She wants to understand her own body and learn. And so I, and I use some numbers, but then I listen very carefully to what she says and what she doesn't say. Cause yeah. I, you know, and, and right. knowing your athlete allows you to also read between the lines, I think. And so the nonverbal communication, the verbal communication, the, the, you know, the qualitative feedback is absolutely important. Uh, but then it, it depends on a trust relationship between athlete and coach that both are calibrated and a willing to use honest metrics, honest feedback. Yeah. And you might yeah. think, well, of course, that would always be true. But now it's actually not always true uh, in situations if the athlete feels like that if they show weakness, then they maybe lose their position on the team or whatever. So there's lots of this going on. Well, there's so much, and it goes back to what you're talking about before is just, you know, human physiology is not linear in the slightest. And it is, you know, whether it's the pressure to perform, to make the team or get the paycheck or um, to impress coach or the egotistical, I need to be fast all the time and I need to win. And I need to, all my friends think that I'm awesome. Therefore I need to do this thing or post a big number. Like there's a lot of things that go into that are barriers to not knowing yourself. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and this feeds into, uh, the deer, you know, everything's connected with everything, but this feeds into the durability right. yeah. issue and that we tend to train what we can measure easiest. Right. And, and so a lot of our fitness metrics, let's in cycling particularly, cause you know, cycling is very, um, metrics friendly. Yes. Uh, because we can measure power and, and all these things pretty, pretty consistently and accurately. Um, so cycling 
what do we have? We have our, you know, your five minute power if it's training peaks or your 20 minute power and uh, your, your 15 second power and your 30 second power and your one minute power. Um, and all of this is automatically, re- you know, uh, extracted from your, your ride data. So every workout, my darn training peaks, because I don't buy, I don't have WKO. I don't pay for all that, but it will tell me I have a new threshold power all the time, you know, cause, cause it's just, it's dumb. You know, it's, it's extracting <laughs> information from rides without having any real conceptualization. Well, this was not actually a 20 minute best effort. This was just 20 minutes during a three hour race, you know, um, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Yeah. So all this, but we tend to be intensity focused, because the metrics are sh- relatively short-term metrics. They are these 15-second and 30-second tw- and, and one-minute and five-minute powers. And so we're constantly trying to improve those, right? Yep. Uh, it's fun. I, you know, I get it. Uh, but the reality is, is that if you're training properly and if you've been training a while, those efforts, those uh, metrics stabilize. Yes. The, they don't, you know, they, they go up and down from day to day a bit, but... They don't, you, you cannot expect if you've been riding reasonably well for five years, you know, doing the training, you can't expect that your five or your six minute power, whatever is just going to keep going up. It flattens out. And in fact, it's one of the first metrics that flattens out in this long-term development process. Yep. Okay. But you keep beating that horse to death because, you know, you want it to get higher. Well, that is one of the things that tends to, kind of facilitate or um, incentivize a, you know, a lot of training mistakes uh, because it's really not the, the increase in five minute power that's going to make the difference for you moving down the road. What's going to make the difference for you is being able to reproduce a big percentage of that five minute power again and again and being able to produce it three hours into a race. And so that's what we need to be working on. That's, you know, we need to be extending, you know, I always tell people, I said, look, every workout you're asking the question, do I, today, what is the main goal? Intensify or extend? It's really those that simple. So by intensify, you mean go harder, produce more power or run faster. Yeah. Produce more power in a given time unit. In a given time unit. And then when you say like extend. A, meaning increase the duration now we get the dur and durability duration ability what is your ability to extend and repeat those periods of effort longer and longer over a longer time frame okay and so the training essentially becomes this management of these two processes of main increasing and ultimately maintaining our ability to produce these high power outputs, these high intensity periods, and then gradually extending our ability to repeat them uh, or maintain a certain uh, power longer. And when you put those two together, you develop the complete endurance athlete the endurance athlete, the athlete that has this durability and this repeatability in their functional capacity. 
And and this is this is triathlon. This is road racing. This is many of our endurance sports. Now, are there endurance sports where it essentially comes down to just the high intensity component? Yeah, there there are. There you know you have track cycling. You have a uh, rowing races. I used to row two thousand meters at six seven minutes of hell. Um, you know, so it is always essentially going up to over your VO two max and doing it once and 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 uh going and throwing up after but (laughs) but this is but a lot of endurance athletes it's about extending right it's not just the intensity part and i would have you i would say that even those rowers if you actually look at the way they train you would have a hard time distinguishing them from marathoners you would find that they are very good at, at the at the duration part too because they train holistically they train the volume they train the durability they put the total package together so some of these world-class rowers have been able to do also excellent things on a bike or on a, on skis and so forth uh, so it turns out that whether you're a six minute or six hour athlete a lot of the training characteristics if you're at the highest levels they're very similar so what what is the dr steven seiler definition of durability since we're talking about it? Well, I have, I've argued or just said that, look, for me, durability is primarily something related to your ability to do, to, to extend and, and do long duration, uh, work that is at or below the first lactate, lactate turn point without that big stress response. So the way I would measure durability in an athlete would be to say, all right, what's your, what's your first lactate turn point? Uh, and so you say, uh, what's well, 240 Watts. Okay. So I was like, all right, well, let's, let's ride at 220 today. I want you to ride at 220 Watts under that LT one, but I want you to just, uh, we're going to just stay there and go, you know? And then I'd ask you, well, how long is your typical endurance ride? You know, your low intensity ride, you say two hours. Okay. So here we go. One hour in heart rate, pretty flat. Mm-hmm. 90 minutes in, maybe heart rate starts to drift up. Heart, now, power is the same, but heart rate's starting to drift up. And by the time we get to the third hour, your heart rate has really drifted. It's gone to thir- 20 beats above normal, above what would be, you know, what it was 20 minutes into this ride. You with me? Yep. Yeah. Why so is that I am, I'm quantifying a cardiovascular drift and I'm, and I'm using that to say something about your current durability because I'm, I'm, I'm defining durability as your ability to maintain a constant internal versus external workload relationship. So it's costing that athlete more in the third hour than the first. Yeah, a lot more. Yeah. And so what I want to do over time is decrease that increase cost that tax that that tax that's happening right now you know because that's going to th- that's going to influence the next step which is the high intensity repeatability because if you're if it's costing you more and more just to do the the low intensity part then it's going to be sure as heck tough for you to stack on top of that those hill repeats that are coming in the race <laughs> mm-hmm. you with me mm-hmm. Yeah, you then you're going to be really in trouble because you're not going to recover from those fast enough, and you're going to get your ass dropped on the second or third lap of an eight lap race. 
right? And so this mm-hmm. is how these things go. And so I want to build my athletes' durability. That's just their base, their basic endurance. Their, you know, I, I've gotten better, but but a a world a world cup or a world tour level rider, I've got data from there. You know, they can sit at at a you know sub threshold pace for six hours, and and they have no drift, mm-hmm. no cardiac drift. They're I can't durable. do anything for six hours without cardiac drift. I can't sit at my, you know, I, I don't think I can sit for six hours in front of this screen without my heart rate going up. So, well, so we don't, you know, <laughs> I know, but, but you get my point is that, yeah, yes. uh, that's one of the things that defines the, these elite performers is they have exceptional durability uh, because they have to, if you're going to succeed at that level, you know, so there's a filtering process. And then even among the best, there's better than the, be- the, the other, the rest, there's the Vanderpools and the Von Arts and the, and the Sagans and so forth that have, over the decades, these these singularities, they, they're the ones that win the classics, the monuments. Why are the monuments monuments? Because they're longer. Mm-hmm. They're that extra hour, even 75, 90 minutes longer than usual stage races, usual uh, races, four, four and a half. They're six hours long, six and a half. And that that separates the best from the rest. You know, before the race ever starts, the Paris-Roubaix or Tour of Flanders, there's only going to be 20, 25 riders that are really in the hunt because they're the ones that have a track record of actually being able to, you know, call upon and mobilize good power, big powers after six hours of riding. And so this is, so that that's durability. And then of course, then you have that high intensity repeatability on top of that. So those that's the way I kind of look at this is, is durability is low intensity endurance and, and then the high intensity repeatability stacks on top of that. Yeah. So it's not that you can do four to six hours. It's how much it costs you. And it's not that you can say do 500 Watts. It's (laughs) what that costs you and how many times you can do it. Yeah. 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 How many times you, because to be honest with you, there are very few occasions in a cycling race where you will actually go and use your full five minute power for five minutes. Yeah. You with me? Yeah. yeah, You're almost never going to see that because why is that? Well, because you will, then you're, you're exposing yourself. You're, it's like, it's like exposing your neck to, you know, a dagger. You're just saying, well, just, just kill me. Because if you have gone that deep into the well, then you're going to get dropped yeah. because you're not, you know what I mean? So, so riders are always using a percentage of this capacity they're using and they do it repeatedly. And if we look carefully at the data from road races, from mountain bike races, what we see is literally, I, I've already started looking at Vanderpool's ride, for example, in Strada Bianca. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this fantastic ride, you know, and he's it's one of these new rides that just kind of gives him legend status. Uh, four and a half, four hours and forty five minute race. Mm-hmm. Uh, Strada Bianca, I believe that would mean the White Road. This this is a yep. race that's destined to become a classic uh, if it's not already, and it's just a shootout. And and the race, the first uh, three hours of the race are pretty pretty, you know 
copacetic for everybody. But then the game starts with, and, and there's an hour and 45 minutes of just pure, uh, you know, just these, these guys are just, just throwing out one power bomb after the other against each other. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal to, to see or to look at the numbers. But what you see, if you really go into it is lots and lots and lots of short bursts, you know, one second, two seconds, 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds of, of, of energy expenditure that is above the so-called critical power above the anaerobic threshold. You know what I'm saying? These, mm-hmm. these, these high intensity energy bursts, but it's not five minutes. It's not, it's rarely that it's, it's very mo- much more often five seconds, 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, but, but it's, they're carefully applying it and then they're getting some recovery because you, they're never, they never want to put themselves all the way out there until the exact, till the end of the race because otherwise they're, they're too, fr- they're too vulnerable, you know, because yeah. it doesn't take much to, to lose a wheel. So, so they're durable. That's the way this yeah. I was going to say, so, so they're durable, but they, they got a lot of awareness too, because they know that 20 seconds, ooh, better get on that wheel, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they have a really instinctive feel for what, you know, how, it's like a battery and, and how much, what percentage of this battery can I use up before I need to put it on the charger again uh, and be ready for whatever eventuality that comes? Because I don't, you don't want to leave the house with only 10% charge on your phone. Right. Yeah, for sure. That then you're too vulnerable, and that's exactly how I would analogize that to cycling. Is they don't want to be at ten percent uh, at the bottom of a hill, right? So yeah. this is this is this game that's going on. Is this this calculation all the time of of how much power can I exert here? And then, of course, breakaways and things like that represent these high-risk strategies. Where, yeah, a guy like Vanderpool will say, "I, I've got the big engine. I'm going to challenge. I'm going to make a, a push and try to get rid of half of this group. Uh, you know, I'm going to start whittling down this race to the real contenders by applying four minutes of at 450 watts or whatever he does. You know, right? So. You know that that happens. It's a calculated gamble, and he knows his body, and he he's saying, "I can do this," and I don't think most of them can keep up with me. And so this is the 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 strategy. Yeah, that's it. And so, and, I mean, and I can recover. He's also saying he already in his head says, "I can do it," and I can also recover on the fly. Yeah, yeah, which is both. I mean, it's like, it, it's impressive to see not only the power, but it's impressive to see the ability to recover and kind of like have that genetic potential to on, on either end. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. It's genetic, but it's also behind every one of these races where you see these massive power outputs, what you also see is there has to be time well below their their threshold there has to be a recovery component and and when you look at these race files there is a lot of time mixed in where they're basically doing nothing you know they're they're on the wheel and they they get 10 seconds of recovery time so this is part it's very bipolar 
in these hmm. races. They're they're quite statistic. You know, I can show you the data. It's quite interesting. But if you've got if if Vanderpool's spending lots and lots of time at high intensity, there has to be some recovery time. He has to, you know, and and that's one of the other things about these good riders is they're smart and they they sneak in. A few seconds, like even before Van der Poel's big push at the end, he he was able to come down to around 200 watts for a, a little stretch. And that was probably really decisive for him, that he was able to re- to get a reset. And then he just pulled out the power bomb. Uh, but he, he had some recovery time. And so that in that critical power w prime model that's you know that's what you you play with this this relationship between time spent above critical power and then the necessary time below it to recharge that battery so this i think you said it before on another podcast but this biological durability that's based in a low intensity durability and a high intensity repeatability right like you're training you're training an organism to uh, produce power and re- recover and become more resilient to that. But being able to do that, say in a race or being able to do that in a workout, I mean, that's that there's pacing that's critical to it. And there's also like this psychological component that's, that's going on to be able to do that, say in the race with Vanderpool. I mean, when you're say coaching your, your daughter or working with an athlete, I mean, how much do you spend on that cognitive portion to pull them down from those high intensity time periods? Or if you get the intensity distribution right in the workout, right? Is it something that you don't worry about? Yeah, it's a good, I think it's a little bit of both. If, if I use my daughter as an example, you know, mm-hmm. so she'll sometimes say, well, if I, if I do these really tough workouts and it's, it's quite easy for me to go easy on the easy days, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense that she's so tired that, she needs to go easy. So there is a certain degree of self-organizational property here, mm-hmm. I would argue. But then she also does have to be quite aware. And, and, and she, like most athletes, I have often described her as she, you know, she's ready to dig. She carries a big shovel and it's not a problem for her to work hard. So I have to be the brakes and I have, and slowly she's overtaking this and and absorbing this understanding of her own body. And she is more, um, what should I say? Less combative in the Hmm. sense that she thinks every workout is a race. She's much more big picture. She's understanding the realities of, of the training process. It's chess, you know, it's seeing moves ahead. It's understanding that, that, Hey, in the course of this season, I'm going to train probably, uh, you know, anywhere from 300 to 600 times, depending on athlete and how they organize their training and stuff. So hundreds of times, even I, a 55 year old age group Zwifter, I'll end (laughs) up training maybe over 300 times this year. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of stimuli. And, and, and it also tells me that pretty much I can be pretty darn confident that there's not going to be any one epic workout that is going to define my fitness right. in, the, in the forest of 300 stimuli. So I have to have a big picture understanding, a helicopter view of what am I trying to achieve and what is my body capable of at my age and with my current training background and where are the places that I can uh, 
relatively speaking, at my age, get better. Right? I have to have an honest assessment of that. And, and if I'm honest with myself, I know that, yeah, I think I can do, I'm about good for 400 watts for six minutes, and that's not going to get better. It may, I may have a brilliant day and do 403, you know, but on, on a bad day, it's 387, but that's where I'm at. And it's only going to go down with time because my, you know, I'm going to get older. <laughs> so I'm not going to get too crazy about training super, you know, lots of intervals. I'm going to maintain that. Yeah. But now I'm going to look on the other end and say, you know what? I tell you what I've seen is that the, I'm getting better at being able to produce a darn decent power two hours into a race now that I was not two years ago. Yeah, that extensive power that you talk about. Yeah, and so I, I, and how am I achieving that? Well, this year I said to myself, well, one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to have an increased number of my total sessions where I hit three hours. I'm going to, yeah. you know, so I just give myself some, guide markers for some small steps along the way in the bigger picture. I want to have, you know, more workouts that are in, on that long end of the spectrum because I want to try to stretch, extend my durability a bit and, and try to then stack on top of that. You know, I'm going to do some workouts where I am going to purposefully do some intervals, some pushes after two, two and a half, even three hours of riding instead of always doing them fresh. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, exactly. And so that, that depth of training that you speak of and that, that need to go three hours, I mean, that is promoting or developing the durability, um, on those days. And, and I mean, can you, can you get that without doing three hours plus? I mean, if, if you got 10 hours to train and you always do two, are you leaving something on the table if you don't go four on a day? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have data, you know, and, and this is one of the kind of interesting questions that we discuss right now in training mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, is the single long workout versus two shorter workouts on the same yeah. day, for example, yeah. uh, in a lot of sports in, in rowing, for example, the norm at a, once you reach a reasonably high level, you're going to split up and do doubles. Okay. But mm -hmm. here's where that interesting difference is, is that that rower races six minutes and the elite cyclist at least may race six hours. And right. so the argument for the rower doing three hour rows is less compelling than it is for the cyclist needing to do some very long rides. Yeah. Right. Uh, to build endurance that they will literally, they will sit that long on the bike in races. So that is a, a more compelling argument for uh, that. You do need at least some of your workouts to be quite extensive, both physiologically in terms of signaling for adaptation, but I think also psychologically you need yeah. to get in that headspace of what does it feel like to be five hours into a fondo uh, mm -hmm. or, or a, a triathlon you know, or whatever it might be? And how am I going to, wh what is my conversation between mind and body? What, what should I anticipate? What are the questions my body is going to ask my brain? And what are my answers going to be? 
because that conversation will happen. And so it's helpful, I think, to have had the conversation or at least had a dry run of it, you know, and and be ready with some answers that are uh, not negative, that you don't put yourself into a negative spiral. So yeah, that's, I, that's hobby psychology, but, but to be honest, <laughs> the physiology and the psychology do kind of mix together. Yeah. Yeah. They, they coalesce for sure. And there's specificity built into that. Right. So if you're, if you're competing for six minutes or six hours, I mean, logically it just it's, makes sense. Oh yeah. We should have a longer training session. Um, it, absolutely. But when you, when you're talking about at the level that we are, you know, I think, from the metabolic and, um, biological signaling. Um, I, I mean, personally in my practice, yeah, I want that athlete to definitely go longer if they can and organize it in that way, especially if their events are three, four, six hours in, dur- in duration for sure. Yeah. And, and I often think of terms of stair steps is the a staircase has, uh, rise and run. You know, each step has a certain run. That's how long the step is or how deep it is. And then it has a rise. And you can use both of the the rise and the run in training in the way you prescribe. And athletes tend to be too focused on the rise, you know, the, the intensity. But you can both in your, even in the interval training prescription, even in the high intensity training prescription, we can get better at manipulating both of these variables in an appropriate way so that we titrate load more carefully. If I, exi- I can exemplify this in an in endurance, in an in interval session, you mm-hmm. might, let's say my daughter, she's been, uh, she's now going to go into a prep cycle for a 10 K in April. She's been doing a lot of middle distance ish training. She's training with a club in Oslo where they do a lot of, you know, four, 20 times 400 meters and 10 times 1000 meters, you know, a lot of short intervals, you know, relatively short intervals because she's more of a 10 K half marathon type. Um, so now I've said, okay, dear daughter, we're going to go back to our formula. We're going to go back to some of these longer interval sessions. Uh, but we're going to, you know, ease into it. So the first session she'll do on Saturday will be essentially three times eight minutes. So 24 minutes of work, eight minute duration intervals. So those are obviously a lot longer than 400 meter repeats or thousand meter repeats. And we're starting to move towards that sustained effort, that sustained race pace of a 10,000 meter, you know, 34 minutes or so. And so, and then, so what's step two? Is it to go a bit faster? No, we're going to go four times eight instead of three times eight at the same speed. More time in zone. Yeah. And then at peak, you know, she'll, she'll probably hit five times eight. Yep. And then she'll race. And, and, and if we compare her, th- her intensity to last year, then it, yeah, it's a bit higher, but it's not a huge amount higher. Right. So mm-hmm. small steps of in, in intensity times 40 minutes. That's a big change. You know, that's a big change. In right. capacity. Right. So we use the accumulation of, of work time as a very important variable in the, in the training prescription and execution. And, and, and mentally also doing those 
longer intervals, she feels more tuned in to race pace for the actual 10K. And there's no, it's less deceptive because you can deceive yourself with really short intervals and get through the really short interval workout, but, but you don't realize that you're using a lot of this, you know, anaerobic capacity to get your way through it, but you really, it's not really sustainable. Yeah. So that's why we, in a, you know, in a race prep, both mentally and physiologically, we like to use some of these longer intervals just to kind of, it's, they, they are the truth tellers in terms of where is this athlete in terms <laughs> you know, in, in terms of pace maintenance, can they hold that pace for 34, 35 minutes? Yeah. And the pacing's a super crucial thing. And one thing I've appreciated in your work, uh, over time is your, uh, passion and encouragement for a 60 minute effort for, for cyclists. I know we were just talking about a running, uh, pacing, but when we're spending time at a specific power duration or pace duration to find those thresholds or to explore a race simulation type thing to be able to then race better. Um, I think it is from the pacing and psychological standpoint, um, super important. So whether you're building up in through intervals or you're actually just going for it in that like 60 minute approach of finding your threshold or your edge. I think that the, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be gained there from a psychological standpoint as it pertains to the physical. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and, and also I, you can almost show physiologically that you can see athletes that have big gaps between their 20 minute power and their 60 minute power. And then you see athletes that have much smaller gaps. Um, and, and, and like, for example, myself, I've seen that that gap for me has gotten smaller just because I've gotten a bit better at extending. Right. And so that, uh, in that adaptation is more accessible to us longer as athletes, I would argue. Um, and I've even talked about this as, you know, in, in the eight, as an athlete gets older, what do we tend to see? They, they go, they migrate to longer events. Why? Well, it's in tune with how we age and what, what our relative deficits become. And we lose top end power faster than we lose that extensive power. And so, so this is one of the reasons why you can see quite good marathoners pushing a pushing 40 but you're not going to see a 40 year old doing super stuff at 3000, 5,000 meters, you know? Um, so that's, that's a bit of this issue. And, and, and I just think that good grief cycling is fundamentally, I mean, the hour of power is so, is so fundamental to the cycling history, the cycling psychology that, that I think it should be a badge of honor to have some um, understanding at the both at the most fundamental level of what that feels like the hour of power you know <laughs> and it's such a good it's a it's a very good benchmark yeah I, I couldn't agree more and if people are intimidated by that I'd say first of all just go out and try it <laughs> see where you're see where you're at and if you can't make 60 minutes well then uh, you know adjust the pacing accordingly and get there but some of this takes time too i mean uh, you know a young athlete may not have the the pacing mechanism in the brain to go out and do a 60 and also the the power duration that it takes to get there um 
so Dr. Sadler, when we're, when we're talking about developing an athlete's ability to do a 60 minute sustained effort or something that is applicable to their race performance, I mean, it takes years to get there. So can you speak to how you would go about developing an athlete to, to, to get there and how long it would take? Right. Well, actually, this is where we come back to this idea of polarized training or 80-20, whichever terminology you like. And that, and that is basically that the majority of the training volume of the athlete is going to be at an intensity below that first lactate turn point. It's going to be talking pace or green zone level extensive endurance is another term that gets used. And there is, there's a misconception about this type of training among people. They think of it as recovery training or trash miles or just something they do to get to the next meaningful training session. And this is really poorly understood um, because it turns out lots of research shows, lots of observation of the best demonstrates that these low intensity, longer sessions do a, ha, have a great uh, adaptive signaling effect. They are very important and a very important part of the adaptive process. So to get to the point of your question, that person who wants to improve their one hour power, I want them to be comfortable doing two and even three hour steady rides And that is going to form a great platform for now starting to interject intensity and prepare them for the one hour of power. Okay. And so we think they, but they will often approach it backwards. They'll approach it from an intensity standpoint. Saying, well, I've got to get, you know, I've got to get a bigger five minute power and then my 60 minute power will get better. Well, no, we, we need to build your, your, the pyramid from the bottom, and that is extensive. We need to get you comfortable with two hours, get you comfortable with even three hours. That's going to help make one hour feel more uh, reasonable. And then we're going to, ex- so we're going to first extend and then intensify. So if I give an ordering effect to this, I'm going to, we, we have to have more faith in the value of just getting up, increasing the volume of, of training, doing longer, long rides, finding an extra uh, session, time for an extra session if you can. But at the, at the least, trying to extend your longer rides and don't let them all become these 70-minute threshold sessions, right, that we, yeah. we extend them. So that would be some of my, the, the most important thing I can say. And then building on that, then we'll do uh, some interval training, some, some, some of this intensification work. And when we put those together, we're going to, what will come out of it is a good and, and improved 60 minute power. And, and I, I almost want to say, I guarantee it, but I'm not a used car salesman, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> but, but it does work. Uh, and, and so many times I've gotten so many, literally hundreds of emails over the years where people say, good grief, this worked. You know, I, I, I did a lot of extensive work. I did some intervals and then my threshold power just got better and they don't understand it because they weren't doing those threshold sessions all the time. Yeah. You got to pour the concrete before you build the roof, right? (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and so anyway, if, and, and it goes back to that deal, you, every workout you either extend or ex- intensify, you have to understand the value of both and the extensive work, the, the, just doing the time and putting your hours in on the bike that does have dividends. It does pay dividends. If you're, if you're, um, disciplined and if you have, you know, some clarity in what you're trying to achieve in those workouts. Agreed. Agreed. So Dr. Saller, as we're kind of wrapping up and, and going long here, I've got a few more questions before we, uh, uh, do the final summary and, and take this thing home. So first of all, for our audience who are seasoned veterans and have been doing, you know, three plus years of structured training, and maybe they're doing some ultra cycling or, or Ironman distance events. I mean, what should they monitor in their training? What should they be looking at in order to get the most out of the results that they intend for right now? After listening to this podcast, what they should be, what should they be looking at? Well, if they've been training, what should we call it? I want to say properly, but if they've been training, you know, doing a, using a reasonable model of, you know, uh, good training intensity distribution, and they've been doing several years of this, then we have to assume that most of their short high intensity metrics have stabilized. And it's about repeatability. It's about energy, about maintenance, about body maintenance during longer, these longer fondos or whatever the goal is. You're trying to maintain your physiology as long as you can. And that then you start integrating not only the training, but also your, you, you have to start training your gut for, um, for food intake. You know, what, what are the, how am I going to get in enough carbohydrate during the ride? How am I going to maintain a disciplined drinking schedule? How am I going to put these pieces together to, um, achieve my goals on, on the day? And so I would then start as part of that durability development in that I'm going to look at, for example, I, I have a digital weight scale in my cycling room and it's not because I'm, you know, too concerned about my weight. It's just, I use it to estimate dehydration, mm-hmm. uh, on most workouts and particularly long ones just to see, am I actually maintaining hydration? Am I following a drinking schedule, which keeps me, and I try to, you know, say, I want to be under one kilo under, under a kilo of weight loss in the ride. And that's tough. It actually, cause your thirst doesn't keep up very well, particularly if, if there's some intensity and you're really focused in that you, you forget to drink. So this is an example of things that we can do where the physiology is, is intertwined with the, the nutrition, the body maintenance, the, you know, your pacing, understanding your mental self-talk, all of this. So every workout you have put, even if it's a low intensity, long ride where you think, well, I can just turn off my brain. No, there's things you can work on, work on position, work on, you know, am I sitting in a certain way that's tending to create some problems for me down a couple hours down the road with, with fatigue in my shoulders or in my back or whatever. So there's all of these, you you should always be purposeful in looking for, you know, each workout has, has sub goals and, and learning elements in it, whether it's controlling your breathing or 
your drinking schedule. Are you with me in my, my logic? Oh here? yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, substrate, <laughs> you know, you, furnace can't so burn hot. Those things I'm going to work more and more on as yeah. part of that extensive durability aspect. If I'm a, uh, you know, a typical age grouper that is trying to extend and do some longer stuff in Fondos or half, you know, or Ironman or whatever, that's where I can achieve, you know, I can still get better even in my forties yeah. and fifties, you know, <laughs> for sure. But to clarify, are you weighing yourself and, and looking at hydration after an hour session or like what kind of session are you doing? before you, you weigh well, yourself. I've played with everything, but yeah. you know, what I have found is for myself is that there's like a, a hydration threshold where I, it, it's not linear. So mm-hmm. my, the, the sweat rate seems to increase non-linearly. And once I get up in these, you know, for me, what's for me pretty close to FTP ish kinds of powers, my sweat rate just increases dramatically. Yeah. Exactly. And this is and this is pretty important because at the same time it's increasing dramatically, my time to think about drinking is going down because mm-hmm. often I'm in some kind of a situation where I've got to be I've got to stay on the wheel of somebody. You know, you, you with me? And so yeah, sure. this is a dangerous combination of a, a, a nonlinear increase in sweat rate and combined with uh, a, a, a testy situation where I just don't have time to chill out and drink. And that's when the dehydration really, really amplifies. Um, But no, in an hour workout, you know, number one, I got to be honest, I don't do too many hour workouts. I try to, (laughs) that's one of my things is I've gotten to the point where I try to do, you know, in cycling, I feel like I need to get, it's almost 90 minutes is my minimum nowadays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hour workouts happen, but, but uh, I tend to go a little bit longer now. Uh, but then for, particularly if I'm in two hours plus, I'm going to weigh myself just to see how I did (laughs) and and see if I'm doing a reasonable job of body maintenance, you know? Yeah. And clearly, I mean, we could have a whole other 90 minute podcast on nutrition hydration with uh, Dr. Seiler, but, uh, we'll, we'll put a pin in it there, but I did want to clarify and make sure that there was proper intensity and volume correlating with a, (laughs) a need to weigh yourself after situation, but that's actually, it's, that's actually a really good answer, uh, to that question. So for our younger crowd, uh, Dr. Seiler, and we actually have, uh, quite a few juniors listening to this podcast as well, even here in DC, um, a little group that I work with as well, but for those getting into cycling or, or really eager to go out and race and make the national team and this kind of thing, what, what would you say is most applicable to them that they should be focused on when it comes to building durability at their age? Well, I guess if they're, if they understand that term and are thinking about those things, then that's already a great step in the right direction. I agree uh, with that. I'll give you an example. I was testing, we tested a couple of twins. They, they kind of just serendipitously came into cycling at a, a little bit older. They were teenagers and they're just phenoms. Uh, you know, they went into mountain bike. They had no coaching, but they made the, the Norwegian national team in the mountain bike. Their VO2 max is 82, 83 mLs per kg, which is just, wow. that's world class. Yeah, that's they, huge. How old? Class. 
they are currently uh, 19, I guess now. Yeah. So, okay. so they were been brought in onto this developmental team. But the thing about these kids is, is they've got no durability because they've never trained it. They've done mountain biking. They've done these short races. They've got this big engine that just seems to be mostly hereditary. They just responded to just doing almost nothing. But now they want to be road cyclists. And that big engine, it turns out not to be that useful if you can't handle four hours of riding, right? Or five, you know, so they are now having to learn to get the durability. And what I would say to young athletes is, is be aware that the, the cycling game, you know, everybody's got a big VO2 max. I mean, everybody's got a pretty damn big six minute power. So that's going to come. You're going to have that, but you're going to distinguish yourself. You're going to differentiate yourself and climb the ladder with the, the, as your durability improves, you're going to get noticed based on your time trialing. Uh, that's often the, in, the, the entryway into various teams is, is they've got, because it's kind of the truth teller about basic capacity. And then it's going to be a matter of extending, extending, extending. So durability, even as an 18 year old or a 16 year old is something they should be comfortable with working on. And that, and that, and that's just spending time on the bike and not get, being obsessed with uh, the intensity stuff and not being as obsessed with, you know, beating, you know, the half wheeling game that tends to happen. So what I have seen is the young kids that have that calmness in them and that intensity discipline in them at an early age, they're the ones you look, you say, oh, watch out for this kid. They're smart, you know, smart like a fox, and they know how they're going to get better and better. So that's what I would be looking for, and that's what I would be trying to instill in my kids. Yeah, hear that, kids? Straight from, straight from the man himself. Aim for that longer distance, and I think that applies to and those. I am arguing this from the standpoint of having done all of this wrong at the same age. You know? So <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say. I mean, it applies to the people just getting into the sport at whatever age. Just like you uh, were describing at the beginning of the podcast, it's just like you thought, "Hey, it hurts really hard. I don't want to hurt harder. I should try to hurt myself harder and do these hard group rides and try to keep up." I mean, it's there's a long game that gets missed for sure. At any age. Oh, yeah. The long. And, and I'll give you a last example. The, the, in, sure. in Norway, of course, we like our cross-country skiing. And yeah. the cross-country skiing world championships were just held. And in cross-country skiing, the shortest races are so-called the sprint, which is really like a, a middle distance event. But it's a knockout sprint with multiple, you know, like four, you have to win four races to, to win the overall sprint. Yep. And we have a particular guy that already at age 18, 19, he was just world class in the sprint. A fantastic technician on the on the skis, great you know the had high peak peak speed and and that and so he was already uh, gold medal material Olympic gold medal nineteen you know, but he couldn't he was not considered a complete cross country skier because he couldn't win the longer stuff, <laughs> and 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 in skiing you know they want to be complete they want to be considered a complete skier. And now in the last, now he's 24 and it's this year for the first time that he was at the, you know, he was winning the 50 kilometer race as well. 
And, and so it's taken five years of additional training to build that durability, to build that high intensity repeatability that is also necessary in cross country skiing because there's lots of hills and climbs and drop, you know, so it's often the same kind of thing as cycling. So that gives you an example of, of, of the process is those, the peak powers, this peak speed happens pretty early, but that durability takes longer. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I really couldn't agree more. Um, and I guess, you know, this final question that I had kind of is already answered by that one, but I guess if there is a common thing for all, uh, cyclists and triathletes listening to this, that they can do to elevate their performance through increasing their durability. Uh, what is that that they can start doing today? Well, I, I guess I go back to what I've spent the most time in, and that is if you get the basic training intensity distribution right, yeah. you solve a lot of problems. You, you prevent some overtraining, overreaching issues, but you also achieve a, a total stimuli that is necessary for long-term development. So uh, my, my words of wisdom to up-and-coming athletes is to appreciate the yin and yang and the balance between intensity and duration and to respect the realities that they are both really important parts of the adaptation process. And if you get that, if you understand that and don't always double down on intensity, then you, you will solve so many problems in your training and you will have a much more uh, sustainable, enjoyable, and, act and effective training process. I think that's a great summation of the, of our conversation right there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's what we're, what we should be achieving now after two yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, I say, let's put a pin in it there and we'll both get back to our, our day jobs. Um, but Dr. Saller, if people, if people want to have more Dr. Saller in their life, uh, sh should we send them to ResearchGate? Should we send them to Twitter or where, where best to find you these days? Yeah, I guess three three places. One is is a research gate for the hardcore research publications that are available. Mm -hmm. uh, second is Twitter, which is kind of more of a, a forum for discussion about research, about training, uh, and often they'll get just as much feed, uh, worthwhile information from all the other people that respond to the tweets. So that's a nice place. Uh, it's I think there's about fourteen thousand followers in that kind of little group that that i work with and then the third is is i do put out periodically some uh videos teaching videos and so forth on i have a youtube channel so okay. those are the three ways that i try to kind of disseminate and communicate with people excellent well we'll put our links in uh to there on our landing page so for everyone listening to this uh head on over to the train art podcast landing page and you'll get all those resources Dr. Siler, thank you so much for all the two hours that you provided today. I hope our, and I do think our audience will get a lot from it. Thanks a lot. I'm going to go put on my cycling gear and, and uh, ride for a couple hours easy. So uh, I'm going to go practice what I preach. Sounds good. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on the Train Right Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainright.com forward slash podcast, where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. 
Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart, train right.